Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, how Native Americans are reclaiming their narrative. In many cases, I feel that history has been taught about Native Americans as if Native Americans only lived in the past. Some children pick up the idea that Native Americans no longer exist. This is Brenda Beall. And I would like to introduce myself first in the traditional way that we Diné people introduce ourselves. So, yat e, she e Brenda Beall in she, a she hinchle, kia ane bashishchen, to a chane e dashiche, e wut a asanchle. I just let you know that I am born into the Salt Clan and born for the Towering House people. And I let you know what my maternal grandparents' um, clans were. Bial taught elementary school in Utah for 34 years and always gravitated toward using art and music in her lessons. That's when I felt the most connected or balanced in education. In recent years, Bial has led a collaboration with the BYU Arts Partnership, developing lesson plans about Native American culture and history. I found teachers coming to me asking me questions and probably because I'm brown, and they noticed that I might be Native American, and so they would come to me and ask me, you know, I used to teach this, and now I don't because someone was offended, or can I teach this, or I really want to have my children have a more well-rounded understanding. What can I um, teach, or where can I go? Had they had they actually just, like, stopped teaching a lot of these lessons about Native, like they just sort of felt like, I don't know what's okay, so I'm just not going to teach anything to the kids? There are some who had stopped. There were some who said, I've taught these lessons year after year, and I'm just going to keep teaching them the way I teach them. And then there were some who said, I want to make sure that I'm teaching accurate information, and so I'm seeking out sources. Beal remembers one teacher who'd found a lesson plan online to teach a particular Native American dance to kids. And she knew her students would love it, but... She just came to us and said, I'm not sure. And so we took a look at the dance and we went to the tribe. And the tribe said, no, this dance is not a dance that can be done in schools unless a spiritual leader is there to lead the dance. And so we then thought, well, what dances can students do? And we started looking at many of the different dances that sometimes students do in schools. We found that there was only one dance that non-natives could participate in unless they had special permission. And that dance was the round dance. So today, I'm going to share with you... Um, this is one of the lesson plans Bial and her team at the BYU Arts Native American Curriculum Initiative developed. The round dance is also known as a circle dance or a friendship dance. It's a dance done at many social gatherings. Now, there's something that I want you to know. A BYU video team captured footage of Bial teaching in a Utah school last year. And then you hold hands left together, left together. And we're going to go around. Bial invited Shoshana Begay, who's also Diné, to help lead the lesson. The one caveat to doing a round dance is that you need to invite a Native American in to lead the round dance. And some some teachers will say, well, I don't know any Native Americans. And you would be surprised how many Native Americans live in your community and how many of them still hold on to culture and would be happy to come in and help with the round dance. 
What is the consequence of teaching children, of having children come away with that understanding that Native Americans are all one thing and that they're in the past? Indigenous people lose their humanity when you clump them, in, when you put them in the past. We are something you read about, something that maybe you come up with your own imagination about. And so we lose who we are and our sense and our progression and our, our sense of identity. This season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. So today, what assumptions do non-Native people in America have about Native Americans past and present? We found that 78% of Americans knew little to nothing about us. And depending on where you live in this country, you might not even be sure if we still exist. In 2016, communications expert Crystal Echohawk of the Kitkahaki Band of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma founded a $3 million research and strategy project called Reclaiming Native Truth. The biggest headline coming out of the, the research findings is that invisibility was the greatest threat to Native peoples. There were people that literally thought that we all Native Americans had died off. You know, in fact, I was accosted by a woman in a restaurant last year in Connecticut who just was swore up and down that I had to be lying. I could not be Native American because they were we were all dead. You know, it was crazy, right? But, you know, beyond that, it was found that 72% of people rarely or never encounter any sort of information about Native peoples, which is pretty uh, crazy when you think about our 24-7 news cycle, social media, and all the things you know, and as we began to kind of look at these big data points around the invisibility, it was like, but why? Wait, what's behind that? Because that is huge. Uh, and really then we began to kind of see, for example, 87% of schools in the country didn't teach about Native Americans past 1900. And then after that, we sort of conveniently fade to black. You know, you certainly didn't learn about tribal sovereignty in, in your government class, right? And then we really looked at TV and film and found that our representation was less than 0.4%. Was there one finding that surprised you? Or was it all more of a confirmation of like, oh, yes, like that's what I expected <laughs> to see in this data? I mean, I think it was really... I, you, I mean, I got teased a lot, right, by other Native people like, oh, you paid $3 million to figure out that we're invisible. We could have told you that. But what was surprising to everyone was to see it was really big systems. I think most Native people walk through life and kind of think that this is a localized situation, right, or this might just be in my community, or am I just feeling this? We could see that there were big systems of K through 12 education, media, entertainment, our government that were really um, institu institutionalizing and perpetuating that invisibility. The other big finding of it is that what little representation does exist out there is driven by non-Native people. And we are just showing up as their versions of how they want us to show up, which is usually these caricatures and really harmful tropes and stereotypes. And whether that's in TV and film, racist sports mascots, uh, you know, our culture being taken and we're named out, you know, for cars and Jeeps and military vehicles and you name it, right? Um, it was, that I think it was that profound to see that all of this is being driven by others, right? Um, and how much, you know, our identity, our culture, our names were either erased or being appropriated. Um, and I think that that was the big aha moment for people. I had so many people come to me in the years since we published sometimes getting very emotional, saying that at least I, I always experienced this and I experienced the racism and, and, and the very painful alienation of, of just feeling unseen. But now that I understand what's behind it and it's not just me and I'm, you know, I think at some level in, in Native peoples have sort of internalized the way that society is doing, like there must be something wrong with us on some like level. And to really begin to go, wait a minute, now I understand what's up. And now we have something to organize towards. Crystal Echohawk is part of a growing movement to assert contemporary narratives in all of the systems that have perpetuated the invisibility of Native peoples. Brenda Bial's focus is the place where harmful narratives often take root first, schools. When we started our initiative, I felt strongly 
that we needed to reach out to the eight sovereign nations here in Utah. And when we've gone to them and asked them, what would you like children of Utah to know about your people, about your ways, about who you are? Number one is we are still here. We are thriving. We, we are resilient. Be All's team has now developed 33 lesson plans for Utah schools in collaboration with tribes, incorporating elements of art, music, or dance in each lesson. We have the Paiute Indian Tribe of Utah, and they wanted the history of their federal recognition and sovereignty taught to students. Their history is so unique in the sense that four of their tribal nations had been recognized and then their sovereignty and recognition were taken away. And until five of them banded together um, to once again apply for federal recognition, were they able to receive federal recognition and sovereignty? And this happened only in the 1980s. And so their history is long, but they wanted children to know about that. And so we have two lessons. One is a drama lesson where we wrote a choral reading about Paiute federal recognition and sovereignty. And then another one is a creative dance lesson where they learn about Paiute federal recognition and sovereignty. We try to make sure that we uh, are balancing the two. They're learning about art and they're doing art. And they're also using art to learn about Paiute recognition and sovereignty. And this is a lesson that a teacher can feel confident teaching and, and, and not be concerned that they might be appropriating or misrepresenting or, 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 you know, sort of like play acting. Absolutely. We don't ever play act as, as Paiute people. If this is a choral reading that is done by children um, being themselves, and it's a dance. The, the creative movement is about the journey of um, the Paiute people in gaining federal recognition. We actually went through um, before the tribal council, and we went through the lesson word by word with them. We are constantly in contact with the tribe. And if it is a lesson that is specific to a tribe, we always look for official approval from the tribal council or a tribal entity. And then we put a seal of approval on it on our website. In the case of the Paiute tribe of Utah, the council asked to see the lessons in action. So Bial and her team traveled to a school district near the tribe's headquarters for a demonstration. The children were absolutely engaged. The Paiute um, Tribal Council was pleased. And the um, and I, I, I just feel like it was a success. What difference do you think that will make for the future of that community, the, the non-Native individuals as well as the Paiute people living in proximity to one another 10, 15, 20 years from now when children in that community have all sort of grown up learning these lessons? I can't foresee the impact. I can tell you what happened that day. What happened that day was Paiute children attending that school saw themselves reflected in the curriculum they were being taught, which very often does not happen. And children who were non-Paiute were able to look through and see other other ways of teaching at other people's culture and other people's history. What happened was what I hope our children are able to have happen 10 years from now. I hope that Indigenous people are able to see themselves reflected in the curriculum every day all across the subjects. And I hope that non-Indigenous people are able to have a, a view into a window of other people's ways of doing, learning, and also knowing. Brenda Vale, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you so much for having me. Bial is director of the BYU Arts Partnership Native American Curriculum Initiative. All of their lesson plans are available online at advancingartsleadership.com slash NACI. It's about restoring balance, right? It's about self-determination. 
This is Crystal Echohawk again. After wrapping up her big research project, she founded a company called Illuminative to amplify contemporary Native stories and voices. So we fight invisibility by really advancing, you know, authentic, contemporary quality representation in entertainment, media, pop culture. So that's, you know, we got to help lead the chain, name change for the Washington football team. We got to be part of that coalition that finally got it done after standing on the shoulders of decades of organizing and activism by Native peoples. Why does pop culture representation matter? It, what we see in TV and movies? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, culture is so powerful. You know, a lot of times cultural, societal changes, they'll precede policy and political change. So like always the example is like people can go back and look at data points when Ellen first came out on her TV show. And then you started seeing more representations of the LGBTQ community, for example. And you start looking at movements and organizing and different things that happen. And then that culminates into where we have changes now, where we have same-sex marriage and other huge changes, you know, at the Supreme Court level and, and things that have been passed since then. Um, so that's really important is understanding the role of culture. It's also looking at that Hollywood like controls, creates about 80% of the world's content globally. Right. And when we look at society increasingly that people are not reading newspapers anymore, right? We're getting our news and our perceptions of the world and entertainment from social media, from TV, from film, um, you know, and you see how pervasive and powerful that is. If we can really break into that and change our representation that's authored by us, that shows contemporary Native peoples and in telling you know, Native stories on a range of issues are just showing how we show up in the world vis-a-vis -vis other people, right? Victory number one is that people need to know that we still exist. Isn't that crazy? That is like literally crazy that that's one of the things that we're just fighting is that we are here, people. Right? So, you know, that is why we have such a big focus on that area. Do you remember pop culture representation affecting your sense of Native American identity as a child? Yeah, absolutely. I remember growing up and I was a latchkey kid and would come home, you know, after school, let myself in and I would always watch Bugs Bunny after school. And it was um, probably about third grade. And it was like one of their little Western cartoons or something. And I just remember all of a sudden there were like this big Indian guy with big belly, big red nose, you know, not wearing a shirt was not a very nice, you know, depiction, but he was wearing a, a, a banner that said Vanishing American. And he just walked across the screen and he literally disappeared. And I just remember, you know, how profoundly I was like, I don't understand. Why are we vanishing? You know, and it just, it it's so weird. I, that, that memory, I mean, I laugh because I can't remember what I did five minutes ago half the time, but boy, I certainly remember that moment in third grade. I also remember when my family and I, we all went to go see Dances with Wolves, like our entire family, because the Pawnees were in, you know, depicted in that film. And that was like the first time that I can remember we really saw ourselves. And I remember sitting there with my uncles who are all tribal attorneys. And a lot of them were like, wait, that was a really inaccurate depiction of our people and being upset. And I just remember being a little kid, like around that and just, but what a, what a big deal it was, right? When Dances with Wolves came out, but just how little there was, you know, and it was a big deal. I, uh, you know, if we saw a movie on TV, like our family would all gather to watch it, but, you know, definitely never felt seen or when you did, it was always caricatures and, and it was always being teased growing up, like because somebody had seen something, right? Um, and it was painful. What what are some of the characterizations, um, the caricatures or the storylines that have been most common and, and problematic in media? I mean, there have been many, many that Hollywood has turned to on a regular basis over the last two centuries. What are the ones that, um, that you, you most look to see banished from any film and TV moving forward? Yeah, I think um, that we're all alcoholics. Um, I think that that's got to go. I mean, like, you know, the savages, right? You know, and you, you have more recently, you haven't seen as much as that, but that used to be really profound, like up until just very recently. Just where the depiction of the Native peoples in a film would be only specifically in this kind of like savage warrior. Uh, savage warrior and, you know, the foil against the good 
good cow white cowboy kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, that the, the way that Native women have been treated up until very recently, if you saw a Native woman, she was usually in some ways being over-sexualized, brutalized, assaulted, killed, right? And very one-dimensional. You know, I think it's, you know, it's just kind of this dehumanizing that, that we're just sort of these savage, unintelligent people. Or on the flip side, it's like we're these magical, mystical, we talk to the animals and the trees and the plants. And I laugh because... I mean, I literally sat in a focus group during Reclaiming Native Truth, and I listened to this woman, like, because she lived near a casino somewhere in Arizona, with great authority, tell everyone in the group that Native Americans can talk to stars. Uh, they talk to the stars, and they talk to animals. And I just like, oh, I, I, I miss that. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we all did that. I'm so sorry, but I can't. Tell me, tell me what I did wrong. Um, you know, it's just so those those kinds of associations also can be really, really problematic as well. And what leads those stories to to being told? Like, what's the what's the disconnect there that that allows for these stories to have been told sort of without being challenged for so long in in mainstream media depictions? Because that's how this country has operated across the board with Native Americans, period. So why wouldn't it be any different that Hollywood? Look at the history of the way that the federal government has treated Native Americans, the way that they've taken our land and consistently gone back and taken our land and then go in and, and, and open our lands up for development of pipelines and all kinds of stuff, right? You, you see a, a government from federal, state, local that has been absolutely okay that thousands and thousands of Native women and girls and people go missing and don't ever want to investigate it. There's, there's no value. This country on so many different levels, right, it's baked into the operating system of this entire country to not respect Native peoples as human beings. So why we're just there for the taking. Our land, our children, our women, Everything, a culture, just take it. And Hollywood's no different. You know, Hollywood's Hollywood. We just like go in and, and we'll take what we want um, and, and represent how we want. And I think a lot of times you have to, we just look at why, what is representation? What's trying to be accomplished here, right? And nine times out of 10, it's always a foil within a, within a story, a larger story about somebody else um, that is just makes it convenient. But that's changed. And I think you know, so you do see a moment of change here. Oh, absolutely. I, it, it's not enough, but I think when we finally in 2021 had our first two native TV shows, huge, R Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs. It took that long, 2021, right, to have with native executive producers, creators, writers, directors, talent, you know, in front of and behind the camera, right? You know, so we're looking at that now, and I think. What one of the things Illuminated does is we have partnerships with all the major studios and we see now that there's, there's a slow turning and, and Hollywood understanding like, oh, we can't go in and do whatever we want now, right? And it's, you know, I think Hollywood started kind of going, okay, well, we can start consulting, right? Maybe we'll bring Native people in just to consult little pieces around the end. And it's like, you know, you can't do that. You need to be hiring Native writers and directors bring them in to the storytelling process and not just as consultants, right? And that doesn't mean that you still can't have partnerships, right? Look at Killers of the Flower Moon. That's a Scorsese film. But the Osage Nation said, don't you try to go tell this story without us. This is our story. And they did organizing and advocacy that Scorsese really had to stop and, and went and met with the tribe and really listened to what their concerns were, the priorities around the storytelling. And they formed a partnership with the tribe. And I think, I hope in a post-Killer Flower Moon, you know, moment that people will see that it just makes stories better, right? It makes TV shows and films better. And audiences, you know, the research shows that especially even younger audiences appreciate authenticity and story and diversity and characters and, and whatnot. So, you know, I think there's still a long way to go. I mean, that is nothing. Like our representation though is still, you know, less than 0.4% vis-a-vis other populations represented in, in TV and film. So we have a long way to go, but there are strides being make it, made and it's I'm, I'm really excited to see the changes that have come in the last few years. Is there a dream project that you would love to see make it to the screen? What would that story be or what would that look like? I want to see um, 
something totally that people wouldn't expect. I want it like a, I want a Native American horror film. I want a natives in space sci-fi, right? I just like a, like think about one of your just most fun comedies that where you're just busting over laughing and it you know it's got native people in it. I want like big popcorn, really entertaining stories that just millions of people are going to want to enjoy and see. And that, of course, someday I want one of these films to win an Oscar, right? And and to see our native actors and directors and writers, you know, operating at those those levels. I, and I think it's going to happen. Crystal Echohawk, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Echo Hawk is the founder and CEO of Illuma Native. Follow them on social media to discover Native stories and voices. They are at Illuma Native. Next, we'll speak with a Native artist grappling with the pain of seeing her art and culture copied for profit by non-Native companies. Like, why am I not okay as a human and as a person, but my culture is, like, cool to be put out there in this way that's not even correct or mine. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. My own great-grandparents sold birch bark birdhouses, like um, bowls, a lot of different like birch bark makings on the side of 169, which is a main route in central Minnesota. Uh, my name is Adrian Benjamin. I am a Malaxa band of Ojibwe member. I do many things. I am an equity consultant, a reconciliation advisor. I do beadwork. I guess what I enjoy the most is my jingle dress making, and that's regalia making. Uh, it's very specific um, to my home community here in Malax Reservation in Minnesota. And I grew up with my grandparents were first speakers, so they spoke the language. They spoke Anishinaabe or Ojibwe. Benjamin's grandparents told stories about how decades earlier, a trading post on Highway 169 had been a major source of income for the tribe. They bought a lot of things from tribal members, moccasins, I'm sure jingle dresses, a lot of beadwork, different things, and then they would turn around and sell them to the public. But in the 1940s, a non-Native company named Minnetonka began selling mass-produced moccasins and Native-inspired accessories to the local gift shops. Adrian Benjamin imagines what it must have been like for her great-grandparents arriving at the trading post one day. And along comes a Minnetonka truck with all of these different designs and even using, you know, a Thunderbird, which it has, you know, significant spiritual meaning to Anishinaabe people and probably at a fraction of the price that real Anishinaabe moccasins were being sold on 169, even in, in Minnesota here at that time. And economically, you know, devastated actual work. I mean, I remember, um, you know, my grandma talking about just how those types of items just changed the way that her parents had to, you know, function for work. Is there a, I don't know, do you think, is there like a broader societal harm when appropriation like that takes place? Yes. I think that it makes people feel like, or maybe ask the questions of, why am I not okay as a human and as a person, but my culture is, like, cool to be put out there in this way that's not even correct or mine. And again, I, I take it back to, you know, this is not anything new. It's like, I couldn't speak my language. I, I couldn't um, practice, you know, I couldn't even dance at Powell's. I couldn't, you know, do any of these things. But why is this cool? Like, why is that okay? You know, so, so it's like me as a person. Yeah. My culture is cool enough. But I'm not, yeah, but I'm not. And what effect do you think that kind of appropriation has had on 
non-Native perceptions of indigeneity? I think that it continues this idea that we're a relic of the past, that our stories and our cultures and our art are something to be pillaged or just taken without full, full respect or understanding of what they mean and who they come from. It's, it, it just keeps that idea of that, that our art hasn't grown, that we haven't continued to grow and thrive as people, you know, throughout all of the hardships that have happened or appropriations that have come. All of that loss, coupled with the racism she faced in public schools. I would walk into classrooms so many times and people would just be like, shh. Or you just happen to hear Indigenous slurs. Motivated Adrienne Benjamin to become active in advocacy and education. She's established arts programs for youth and her tribe and lobbied Minnesota schools for more accurate Native American history. And then in 2020, a community elder approached her with a surprising request. She's like, hey, uh, there's this company that's reached out to a few different folks in the community that want to move forward with like doing better with their company. And I just think that you could really be that person to help this along. It was Minnetonka, the moccasin maker that had put so many craftspeople in her own tribe out of business. And I was nervous, you know, so for me, it was I just had the knee jerk of like, well, I really want to meet these folks. And if I'm going to be involved, it needs to be something that's deeper than now. You know, this is like really deep work. In her first meeting with Minnetonka's top executives, Benjamin told them directly about her great grandparents and the ongoing harm caused by Minnetonka's appropriation of her culture. And and David, who is the the CEO of Minnetonka, you know, he said, we need to hear this and we're here to listen. Like we, we take this very seriously. Like we are coming to a level of understanding, you know, and, and I think this was what really drew me to them is like one thing that he said was he was just like, you really have a knack for delivering this not so fun and maybe shameful information, but like with a smile and with a, in a way that leaves room for repair. You know, I mean, if you look at if someone wrongs you, what is the first thing that needs to happen? It That person has to realize it, acknowledge, right? That's number one. And then number two is an apology. So what what did they need to do in order for you to feel like this was sincere and, and actually making a difference? Yeah. So one thing that, um, well, a few things were said. One of the most important for me was how over and over it was stated that this isn't just a one-time thing, that this is something we want, that's going to be a part of our company forever because it's been a part of our company forever. So Adrian Benjamin agreed to become Minnetonka's reconciliation advisor. Since hiring her, the company has issued a formal apology, redesigned its logo to remove culturally appropriated symbols, expanded its philanthropy for Native causes, and begun collaborating with Native artists. What's exciting about the work that I get to do with Minnetonka now is it's showcasing what real, authentic Indigenous art looks like. There's an artist that has just, as of a couple weeks ago, launched her second beaded design with, with Minnetonka now, and her name is Lucy Shefty. She's from the Red Lake Nation, also in Minnesota. And it's, um, you know, there's product lifetime royalties paid to Lucy now for that specific design. So that's meaningful because it's an Indigenous designer and she gets the royalties. So there's there's compensation that's taking place there. And and then Minnetonka also is like it's branded as this is a Native collaboration um, so that customers understand that something's different as well. How important is that? Uh, very. So that was a big part of it, too, is like the storytelling piece. There is a whole um, very detailed uh, part of the website at Minnetonka that tells Lucy's story behind each design. Because I think a big part for, for me when I thought through, like, what does this work look like and how do we amplify these voices in a louder spectrum, it's, it is telling these artists' stories so that the story is maybe no longer about Minnetonka at the front and center of, of these designs, but it's about Lucy Shefty and telling the story of that floral instead of it just being some kind of bead thing that looks cool. And another amazing part that I think is really cool and worth mentioning is that uh, aside from the pro lifetime product royalty, each artist gets to choose an organization that a percentage of the profits 
goes to as well, which is very meaningful because I feel like we are from our communities, like we know what organizations are really serving the needs of Indigenous people, you know, coming through despair, our historical traumas and our our positive impacts too, you know? So I think that's super meaningful. And that's probably like what I'm really most proud of and excited about when I think about it is having a hand in being able to to help that philanthropic piece happen because, you know, that's a big part of it too. Minnetonka has also partnered with Benjamin herself on a collection of felted wool fedoras with beaded rims and a set of beaded moccasins. Like, it's so meaningful. The word in our, in Anishinaabe language is manadu is is bead. They're, they're something that, that holds energy. They're like, in the linguistic part of it, they're alive in a sense. They have a, um, you know, like... <laughs> the male and female in Spanish, there, there's alive and unalive in Anishinaabe and like beads are something that hold energetic value. Where did you learn to bead like that? So I feel like it was, I man, all of that stuff, I give all the credit to like elders in my community because as a kid, they worked so hard to give back to us what was taken away as from them, you know, from the boarding schools or other things like that. And I can remember just going to like community um, events or even just hanging out with like my grandma and grandpa or their friends. And they would give me jingles or they would teach you how to bead, you know what I mean? And it's just when I think back to it now, now knowing what I know about those stories and the historical happenings, I think it's just like I feel so grateful and it's like powerful to me when I think about it too, because it's like they they gave me this life to talk about this stuff and to do this work and to to make these beautiful things that are are now able to showcase our culture and our the beauty of our art. That's how I learned. <laughs> it's all about the elders. It must be hard having inherited that trauma to to spend so much time trying to convince and coax and encourage you know, companies and and to do this education work. Why have you, why have you been willing to take that burden on? That's a great question. I think it's just for me, it makes sense. And it's something that I have to deal with anyway. Like there's no running from it for me as the indigenous person that feels that, that way and, the, and ha- deals with that, you know, thinking back about my grandparents or whatever, or just the things I witnessed from them that they had to deal with too. And I think they saved this beautiful, like Anishinaabe life and the way that we live it and, and our, and show up in this world. And it is part of the beads. It's the dancing. It's, it's the language. It's, it's our ceremonies. It's everything. And, and yeah, they did, they did save it because there was a really, really good attempt at trying to erase it. They remembered, you know, and they, they, they cared enough to still keep it alive and, that's what we're we're tasked with now, you know, as a generation and the generations before us is like to revitalize that and to bring it back because we are okay as we are. And we, we deserve our own art being on shoes and everything else, you know what I mean? And not somebody else's version of it. We deserve our stories. Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Adrian Benjamin continues her work as reconciliation advisor to Minnetonka and has expanded to work with other companies, including Coral and Tusk. You will want to check out her cool beaded fedoras and traditional jingle dress designs on Instagram. Search for her by name, Adrian Benjamin. That's Adrian spelled with an E and two N's. Remember this from earlier in the episode? You know, you certainly didn't learn about tribal sovereignty in, in your government class, right? I certainly didn't learn about it. Which helps explain why so many people surveyed for the Reclaiming Native Truth Project lacked even a basic understanding of the status of Native American tribes in this country, says Crystal Echohawk. The two top, most toxic misconceptions that Americans have is that Native peoples don't pay taxes. We get everything for free from the government, including that we get checks for like every kid that we have, right? But we we just, we don't, we don't pay for college, we don't pay taxes, we get all this money from the government for free. Um, and... So that's a... Not true, not true. I mean, it would be great. 
I, I'm sure a lot of Native Americans with big college debt wishes that, you know, was true. We're like every other Americans, you know, struggling to pay off our student loans to this day. Um, at the same time, so we're getting all of this free stuff, but yet we're enriching ourselves off these corrupt casinos. Um, and that was very prevalent um, that came out in the research. Those big myths still really prevail today. So the lack of an accurate Native American narrative has undermined the ability of tribes to thrive. Next, we'll hear how one Native organization is working to rebuild tribal governments. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. There's a question Wayne Ducheneau of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe likes to ask in his presentations. Yeah, it's one of my favorite exercises to do in especially crowds with a lot of dominant culture folks or, or non-Native folks in particular is I'll say, you know, hey, raise your hand if you have treaty rights. Ducheneau is the founding director of the Native Governance Center. Now, if there are Native people in the audience, all of their hands shoot up immediately. And so then I smile and I explain to everybody, yes, Native folks have treaty rights, but all you, all non-Native folks have treaty rights as well. Because when those treaties were signed, it bestowed upon both sides certain things, right? For Native people, it bestowed upon us uh, the trust responsibility of the federal government to take care of X, Y, Z needs as laid out in those treaties. And then for non-Native people, it laid out those treaty rights that you have are for things like to be able to move into the, the homelands and to be able to occupy territory, extract resources, all those type of things. So I think, yeah, it's fundamentally lost and it shocks a lot of people when they realize that, hey, as a non-Native person, I have a treaty right. For non-Native people, your right to occupy space on this continent doesn't germinate from the United States sovereignty. Your right was given to you from the tribes themselves or outright theft. The United States government recognizes 574 American Indian tribes and Alaska Native entities as sovereign nations. And that means when you enter a reservation. You're really coming onto a nation within a nation and the laws that you have to abide by are those of the tribe and not necessarily the county, the state that with which the reservation shares geography. Uh, I think oftentimes people get confused and it could even confound things like uh, uh, economic development. And so oftentimes you'll see um, corporations that will come in and not want to submit themselves to tribal court jurisdiction, right? Where they freely do it in the state of Minnesota, North Dakota, Utah, what have you, right? Misunderstanding the sovereign status of tribal nations also fuels public contempt for benefits the U.S. government is obligated through treaties to provide tribes like free health care. Native people have a political distinction that kind of separates themselves from other racial or ethnic um, peoples. And so it's oftentimes used as a, a point to pit indigenous people against other BIPOC folks, right? Because why do natives get these things that other people don't get? Well, you know, there are treaties, there is law, there is a history from the founding of the country, like I mentioned, that requires the federal government to live up to these obligations for the vast amount of resources that were taken from Native people. And so I think that allows for people to put, to pit Native people against other people of color. So how can a tribal nation be sovereign but also be dependent on the U.S. government for certain things? The same way the U.S. government is sovereign and dependent on other nations for things, right? So when you think about the United States, we're not a closed system. We are a worldwide economy that is affected by manufacturing in China, by oil production in the Middle East, by export opportunities across the world to sell our goods and wares, right? So there is no nation in the world that is really wholly unto themselves. You know, no tribe has the ability to provide everything for their citizens top to bottom, but they have the sovereign ability to be able to make trade uh, opportunities, to be able to import and export things in order to be able to provide those things that their citizens need to be that thriving, successful people. I come from a, a family of tribal leaders. In 2012, Ducheneau was elected to the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Council. So my grandfather 
was a four-time chairman of our tribe on our very first tribal council after Cheyenne River adopted the Indian Reorganization Act Constitution in 1934. Uh, my father was a two-time chairman of our tribe. My brother Zach had been on council. I had aunties and uncles and cousins all on tribal council. And it, so it's one of those things I'd always aspired to. Like, I'd always figured the pinnacle of my career would be if I ever was able to garner support to leave my nation. I defy anyone to find any elected official across the, the country anyway, that has to be more responsive and knowledgeable than an elected tribal official. And here's why. Tribal council representatives are expected to be everything from community counselors to representing native people on an international level at the United Nations. When I was the tribal vice chairman, I was getting ready to go to Washington, D.C. to have a meeting with the Army Corps of Engineers over a river lawsuit we had with the United States government. So we were going to fly out at seven in the morning, go meet with the Army Corps, fly home on the red eye that night and get back to South Dakota about midnight. My phone rings at three o'clock in the morning and it's our property and supply director. One of the grandmas was out of propane. They couldn't get hold of the chairman, so they called me. They said, Grandma's out of propane. I'm like, well, take her some propane, help her out, right? And I said, why are you calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning? Well, because there's no policy in place that gave this program permission to do this. I'm like, okay, so then I had to file that away. That's the next piece of legislation I had to work on is developing a policy so that there's a, a protocol in place for when this happens again. So anyway, I'm up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm reading my briefs, things that we're going to talk with the Army Corps of Engineers about get on the plane, fly to DC, go straight out to the Pentagon, and I had to sit there and like hold a conversation with these folks about a really complicated uh, takings case, get done with them, go back to the airport, all the while texting people, making sure grandma got her propane, make sure all the stuff happened, land at 11.30 and have to drive two hours home. So that's the thing, like when you think about the, the responsibility of a tribal leader, in our systems that we have, like that is the breadth of the responsibility. Why is it that some some native tribes, tribal governments have been more successful than others at providing for their communities, at organizing themselves, at finding economic success? What makes the difference? It's a multitude of factors. You have to understand that every native nation is dealing with an abundance of historical trauma. My parents were boarding products of boarding school, right? And so when we think about issues on reservations that are oftentimes um, remotely located, we weren't given the best of the land, right? We were given what was left over after allotment happened, let's say, or after folks came in and homesteaded the land. We were given what was left. And so it's been historical systemic issues that we've tried to overcome that some tribes have been better positioned because of where they were, um, the leadership they had in place. But I would argue that every tribal nation, the fact that we're still here, right? Th those of us that still remain that weren't completely wiped out by genocide, there's something to that resiliency too. So while other tribes may be more successful from a Western lens, it's really important to understand that what success looks like comes from the community. And so I would argue that there is love, there is joy, there is abundance in every tribal community because for simply the fact that we're still here. The Native Governance Center offers training to tribal communities and does outreach too. All of it founded on research that shows strong tribal governments have visionary leaders who think long-term, policies and procedures that are clear and fair, and an ability to exercise their sovereignty. Ducheneau says the COVID pandemic provided a clear example. You had many Native nations close their borders off. Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, my tribe, was one in South Dakota where we said, the only, the only way we're going to allow people on reservation is for essential purposes, right? So like, we can't interrupt interstate commerce. Goods and services have to be able to still happen. But we said for all non-essential travel, like, we're going to route you around the reservation. That allowed for our nation for us for a way longer time hold COVID-19 at bay. Don't get me wrong, COVID-19 came, affected our people. I lost more folks than I can admit, but it allowed for our, that time for our tribe to be able to kind of put a plan in place and be able to get our bearings so that when COVID finally took hold here, I think we were better able to deal with it. 
Then when the vaccine started rolling out, tribal nations were able to get vaccines, sometimes in amounts that were more than what was necessary for their people. They didn't hoard the vaccine. What they did is they started opening it, opening it up to surrounding communities. So for instance, in Minnesota, the Leech Lake uh, Band of Ojibwe had excess vaccinations. And so I know dozens of people that drove from the Twin Cities in Minnesota up to Leech Lake to be able to get vaccinated because they couldn't find vaccines in the Twin Cities, right? Tribes, when they have the ability to improve themselves, just kind of it radiates out and they help improve surrounding community. Would you argue that sovereign, that, 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 that stronger tribal nations are actually, it sounds like you're kind of saying that it, it's, it's also better for non-Native people. <laughs> yeah. So when you think about when uh, back several hundred years ago, when those first boats came over, tribal nations didn't build a wall. We didn't send people back. To our detriment, we helped people understand how to live and thrive here on this continent. Right. It ended up to our detriment because with westward expansion, um, you know, there were tribes completely wiped out. You had the Cher- Cherokee Trail of Tears. You had land theft, genocide. And we lost a lot. We lost language. We lost culture. We lost all this stuff. But you're seeing now a revitalization in, in Native communities where as we are reaching back to those best practices from our culture, from our traditions, as we're healing ourselves, I truly believe we're going to begin to again heal the world. Take a look at the Pacific Northwest and with climate change and the proliferation of uh, wildfires. And you look at some of the tribal nations who have stewarding agreements with the federal government controlling forest systems. And you see how they are using ancestral knowledge on how to best maintain a forest. These wildfires are popping up all around the areas that they control. There is a wisdom and indigeneity that not only benefits us as a people, so as we're rediscovering it, we're healing ourselves, we're becoming revitalized, those lessons automatically then we share out. Because one fundamental value across all Native peoples, at least in my experience, is generosity. As we are able to give, and as we are able to heal, and as we are able to improve ourselves, we don't just keep it to ourselves. Wayne Ducheneau is the founding and now former executive director of the Native Governance Center, a Native-led nonprofit helping tribes exercise and strengthen their sovereignty. Top of Mind is a BYU radio production. Today's episode was produced by Vanessa Goodman and James Hoops with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Spencer Hewitt and Kelsey Ney. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>